Okay, so first of all, I want to thank you all for coming out on a Wednesday night. I'm sure there's a lot of other things that you could be doing, and this is really exciting for us to convene around the subject matter of artificial intelligence, which I know is on everyone's agenda these days. But maybe a little bit of background, how we came about and who we are. So first of all, uh, Mikhail and I were having breakfast about, was it six months ago? He paid. Uh, it was a very good bagel in the uh, Soho area. And uh, we said, why don't we just like bring a bunch of people together and try to find a good balance between things that are tech and AI and things that are more commercial and sort of what an investor's point of view is, rather than having it diverge too much in one direction. And so that's how this event was born as, as an idea. And thanks to a lot of the support from their team, as well as the Seedcamp team, Natasha, Iwana, Miguel, and the rest of the Seedcamp team in helping bring us together and the Idea London team for the venue. So we're going to structure this. The first section is going to be this sort of triumvirate of balance between an, an academic, uh, a founder, and an investor. And we're going to explore the subjects that matter to all three of them. Now, before I go any further on that, I want to give you a little bit of context as to why this is so interesting. And I have to thank Traction, the, the analysis company, for some of this data. So Google, Apple, Intel, and IBM, and Salesforce have made several buyouts in AI infrastructure companies this year taking the total acquisition count to 44, with GM's acquisition of Cruise Automation at roughly a billion for this year alone, making it the largest. And AI investments in healthcare and pharma sectors have reached peak funding of 482 million in 2016, which is two times investments that were done a year ago. So that gives you a, a volume of, of growth. The traction guys split the value chain into two segments, infrastructure and applications. And I'm gonna give you sort of my two cents of how the value chain is set up. But the infrastructure, uh, which includes a lot of the components that make up uh, in the, the, the AI value chain, uh, is made up of 402 million worth of capital raised over 63 rounds. And the applications, which is a lot of what we think of today as the utilization per sector, has made up 229 investment rounds at 2.3 billion raised. So that gives you a quantum of the areas that they find interesting, which is the applications, the vertical applications of AI versus some of the infrastructure of AI. And I think where that, the reason why that's interesting is because a blog post that I wrote uh, earlier last week on Medium talks a little bit about how in mobile, a lot of the same stuff happened as well. There was infrastructure, there were platforms that enabled the mobile revolution to take place. And VCs in 2007 were chasing their tail and trying to find out mobile companies. But what we know today is that mobile is actually just an enabler. And actually what matters are the sectors, the applications that ride on top of a mobile platform. And that's, and that's how I see this sector evolving over the years. And the platforms and the technology associated with AI will be relegated to the, the big platforms that can afford the R&D. I want to pass it now to Mikhail from North Zone uh, to share a little bit about not only what North Zone is doing, but a little bit about your background since you, know, you, you did some of this as a founder. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Carlos. I think when we were having breakfast, we said to ourselves, we're seeing a lot of companies and every company that wants to make sure that we return a phone call just sla slaps AI or machine learning on the, on the cover. And what if we do an event and we just call it AI is now? I'm sure everyone will come and you, you prove that you kind of buy the hype just like we do. Um, I started my career in tech in the 90s. Uh, starting an AI company. And at that point, we had to speak to 104 VCs, and only halfway we kind of figured out that we had to hide that we were an AI company to be able to raise money, instead of the, the other way around now. And um, as, an, as an investor, I must say, it's unbelievable to see what's happened in the, in the last 
even if only kind of two years. And uh, the kind of areas that we like to look at in AI are either to do with um, creating higher quality in something that is incre incredibly valuable. So you see that in kind of trading, you see that in, kind of in, in, in fraud, or be able to do what you couldn't do because it, it took vast amounts of manpower which is kind of like on customer support or some, some, of, some of the image recognition stuff. And so what we're seeing is that AI, like Carlos is saying, is enabling this new frontier of industries that couldn't be online before to kind of come online. So we've seen a lot of really interesting investment opportunity at Northstone. We're a very large early stage investor, uh, investing all over Europe and the US. And uh, we have offices here and in the Nordics and in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're super excited to be here today. Thanks, Mayo. Before I talk a little bit about SeedCamp, just to get a feel for the audience, who here is a founder or soon-to-be founder? Yeah, mm -hmm. great. And then investors? Okay, so that's a good split. So SeedCamp, so who are we? Well, uh, SeedCamp's been around since 2007. Next year, we're going to be turning 10 years old. I can't believe how time, time flies. And we have some of our investors here, uh, Tim and, and Rosemary, thank you. And what we've been doing since then is finding the finest founders to build world-class companies and scaling them up and helping them scale that up. And we do that by investing them at the pre-seed and seed stage levels. And one of the areas that obviously we're known for to companies like Transwise is the fintech cluster that we have of companies that are in that space. But we also have a, a sort of stealth AI cluster. And I think this is probably one of those first events that we're going to have where we start talking more and more about our strategy there. And, and you'll meet some of those companies today. And so with that, I want to move to our first panel, um, which will include the, the famous Ed Chalice from Rick Furrow, uh, Michael, obviously you've met before, uh, and uh, Dr. David Barber, who, as I understand, is the Sith Lord that trained Ed. <laughs> That's true. Is that, is that true? It's not, the Sith Lord is not true, but I did train it, yeah. Okay, excellent. So. Uh, some of these questions came, uh, Tabitha, are you here from Cognition X? Yeah. Some of these questions are uh, thanks to her, so thank you for that. What I want to do is start off by maybe having the, the state of the art. Uh, I know that you did a research report recently for a private organization, and you talked about the current state of AI and what will come in the next few years. Maybe, David, you could start there. Okay. Wow, what a question. Uh, AI, state of it. So I think, obviously, it's, uh, it's hugely exciting, and... I think on the grand scheme of things, though, we can, people from AI would say that what we're doing right now is largely perceptual AI, so the different kind of categories of AI. So, you know, in some sense, what you might hope for is that you get this, like, really wonderful, all-singing, all-dancing AI machine, this robot, which can, you can ask it any question, and, you know, you get it to do uh, really interesting things, interact with the environment for you. But this is a very, very difficult thing to do. Why? Because, actually... Those robots require a lot of common sense reasoning, which is very, very difficult to encode and to encapsulate. So if you want to interact with a robot really in a completely seamless way, you would need to know an awful lot about humans and how we behave and what the world is like. So what we've been focusing on largely is what we call perceptual AI, which means essentially how to perceive the world like humans do. So for example, can you make uh, robots or machines which can say, do objects classification, can do speech transcription. These kinds of things are relatively straightforward. So the vast majority of the current state of the art and uh, what's exciting about AI is there, it's on the perceptual AI front. 
So what we would like to move towards in the next step is this more general sort of uh, non-perceptual AI, the reasoning part of AI. How do you sort of interact with people and reason with that interaction in a very interesting way? So that's really kind of where we are right now. In the last 10 years, has seen an enormous acceleration in the abilities within perceptual AI. And that's largely being driven by compute resource increases and data resource increases as well. So what took 10 years ago, uh, around about 24 hours to train to get a state of the art on, say, object recognition, now takes maybe a couple of minutes. Um, that's the kind of scale that you've seen within sort of 10 years. If you look back over 20 years, actually the scale is just enormous. You know, there are this orders of magnitude. What takes now, say, two hours on a, on a GPU would take uh, would have taken 400,000 years 20 years ago. So it's quite hard to perceive. You know, it's still calculating right now. It's still going. It's still going on. Yeah. So if this is the kind of the idea that you know some people are very excited about things like you, know, you might hear things like oh, the singularities around the corner because you know we are approaching the point where the number of uh, transistors on the chip is commensurate with the number of neurons in the brain. Personally, I think this is a little bit too fanciful. I don't think the singularity idea is really that relevant for you know, hardcore business people and investors. I think it's a little bit of a, bit of a daft topic, personally. But some people are uh, certainly very excited by the scale that we've got now. It's certainly that the compute resources are approaching the limits of the human brain. So I think we will likely see you know, big uh, advances in things like machine vision. So roughly one third of your brain is involved with machine vision, so it's a hugely complex task. And having that sort of hardware and that uh, the data resources mean we're going to continue to make huge progress in those kind of areas within the next five to 10 years. So thanks for that, David. Um, one of the things that I had spoken with Ed earlier today was around the different bits of the value chain in AI as he would categorize them. And it was really funny because I was trying to get him to sort of do the same type of structure that you would see in the McKinsey report, but he refused to cooperate with that. And instead, he proposed an alternative, which was more towards, I think, a lot of the things that um, that you had just mentioned, starting off with perception. Do you want to walk us through that, Ed? What, what was that structure, and, and where are we on a percentage basis in each one of those? Okay, yeah, so uh, I struggle to put AI in this value chain framework because um, it's hard to conceive of it as a kind of packaged good and something where you can easily map out uh, all the stages of production that created uh, that value. Uh, so, but I'm also a machine learning and AI person, so I kind of viewed it in terms of uh, an intelligent agent. Um, so if you thought about what was the value of an intelligent agent, uh, the first stage of, is a kind of any agent, any organization, a robot, a business, an animal, you can kind of break it down into this kind of perception, action, and then a potential reward. So you've taken a, an action in the world. And then once you've got that reward, you can use that information to improve your capabilities to get more rewards, right? So a business, the reward is uh, margin or profitability or, or revenue. Um, and um, you know, you're thinking about how you can improve that all the time. So I think the vast majority of uh, commercial applications of machine learning are really focused on that perceptual stage, the very first stage of perceiving the world. Um, and then there's much less uh, kind of machine learning in terms of actually taking actions in the world, and then an order of magnitude less in terms of machine learning systems that are 
um, updating and improving themselves based on past experience. So I think a good analogy here would be something uh, like in the kind of space of cars. So uh, the first stage of machine intelligence in a car would be parking sensors, right? So you would have the sensors on the car and it might show up on your dashboard um, some information about the, the position of your car in relation to the cars that you were trying to park against. And that would be an aid to the, it would make the parker more proficient, right? Um, uh, so so that's, that's value stage one. Stage two would be kind of, you know, lane assist and auto driving, right? So it would be actually the car and the machine on board would be driving the car. Um, but if you really think about you know, uh, what you would want from a chauffeur, it's not just driving a car, but every day that car is getting better and better being my chauffeur. So you know, on a rainy day, it drops me off in a different place than on a sunny day. On a Friday, I know I leave work a little bit earlier. And it's constantly using its information about the world to be the best car driver it could possibly be. And so I think, you know, in terms of the kind of penetration of machine learning and those kind of, if you break it down in that sense, pretty much it's mostly kind of understanding the world, right? Um, and there's much less, you know, much less in terms of algorithms actually taking actions. Um, so probably the best example of algorithms taking actions is in automated trading, right? So, but then there's typically always someone in the background back testing the algorithm tweaking it and then deploying it again. Right? So there's a limited amount of learning from reward in, in, in algorithmic trading, but ultimately there's a human in the loop iterating and improving and defining new data sources. So I want you to come back maybe after we've had a chance to hear from Mihail to tell a little bit about how for works within that scope, considering that you deal with a very emotional period in the customer's experience. But before we do that, Michael, could you um could you walk us through the hype cycle? I mean, I, I was reading uh, David one of your your pieces around the '90s hype on neural nets, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's some breakthrough technology, and everybody thought it was like a stinky yeah. piece of uh, intellectual property. And mm -hmm. you know, what, we run the risk here of as investors making that same mistake again and again. What is what is your strategy getting out of that mess, Michael? Yeah, first first of all, I think the situation is now very different than it, than it was before. And uh, I think where the hype cycle back then was the promise of what's possible versus the, re the reality, I think now there's a lot possible, but now the, the risk is how do you apply it? And what of, uh, of applying it is, 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 is machine learning and AI, and what of it is everything else around it? So, the way I simplistically like to think about it is like all of a sudden you're allow, you're able to do things 10x more complex, 10x more precise, 10x more, more specific. And what do you do with that? All of a sudden it is possible to you know, do sentiment analysis or image recognition or uh, complex pattern recognition. But that in itself is not a problem. You can't just give that... Uh, to a user and say, hey, now you, you have that ability. And like Ed was saying as well, I was like, part of what is complex about real good machine learning is how do you create that feedback loop? So if you create a generalized product that you then throw over the wall and have other companies apply, you don't get that kind of learning built in. So a lot of the things that we look at and are really excited about are, are companies that say, okay, now that I can do this, like they did with mobile 10 years ago, 
now I have this ability I never had before. How can I change this vertical or this horizontal application and then understand what are the building blocks to it? First of all, it's not just an algorithm, but you need to get everything else equally well. So if you have a you know, a customer support system that kind of does uh, in an automated way what uh, what what uh, humans would do before you would still need all the interfaces and all the things around it that any customer support system needs. Secondly, the quality of the data, the availability of the data, the scrubbing, etc. As in all big data problems, is is huge. And if you don't get that right, you can do the middle part really, really beautifully, but you're not going to get anything. Then the third bit is it's probably like you're saying with your tra- uh, training algorithm, it's a lot of techniques stacked on top of each other. Some of them are machine learning, some are not, etc. So doing that well and getting that right is really important. So ideally, you you're, you're looking for people that do all those things on top of each other right, and that's how you avoid the hype cycle. And if it's just really really smart technology that doesn't deliver the benefits that you're looking for, it's, yeah. The enthusiasm, a year from now, everyone is going to go to a forum and you have to slap agricultural tech on the, on the door to get everyone in and then the AI, the AI uh, room is completely empty. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And with some of those things, with some of those components, it's actually hard to know where exactly we are in the progress. Like, for example, one of the things that we talk quite a bit about sort of in, in the blogosphere is deep learning. Um, David, you, you talked in one of your um, in one of your core posts. Uh, you were talking about sort of the importance of deep learning being linked with understanding how the brain works. And Andrew Ring, who's a chief scientist at Baidu, talked about how deep learning is overhyped at the moment because in order to truly understand deep learning, you need to truly understand how the biological brain works, and which is not there yet. Maybe you can comment on what your answer was. I still don't remember what my answer was, but um, so. I should say, first of all, actually, um, just some, you know, notation and nomenclature. So, I don't know what you guys know about this stuff, but machine learning is uh, a branch of AI, so um, so it's important to sort of know what this means, actually. So, you know, AI itself could be, mean many different things to different people, right? So, it might be the philosophy of mind, something like that. Machine learning is data-driven AI, if you like, right? It's basically how to solve AI problems essentially using pretty much data alone, or a very, as, as little human sort of input as you possibly can, just let the data speak for itself. So deep learning, you'll see sometimes people online saying, we're not doing machine learning, we're doing deep learning, right? Actually, deep learning is a subset of machine learning. It's a, it's a particular technique within machine learning to solve AI problems, right? So deep learning refers to the concept of trying to make systems which are loosely modeled on the way the human brain works. And it's been a very popular idea for at least 50 years. So there were many interesting uh, things going on in the 1950s, 1960s, the first actual real neural networks, uh, which were modeled on artificial neural networks, modeled on the brain, appeared in the late 1950s. And uh, since that time, there's been intensive research. It's gone up and it's gone down, depending on compute resources, government funding, hype, etc., etc. Right now, we're at peak hype, hype cycle. You can't get any more feverish than this. And the deepness about deep learning refers to the fact that back in the old days, in the 1990s, we could only train uh, networks which were what we would call now shallow. So what this means is that you think about something like the visual system, 
you know, you see something in the world that gets encoded on your retina, goes through various stages, layers of processing in your brain, and then you recognize the object at the back of your brain. And I, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't know exactly how many layers are involved, but there are, I believe, something like 12 layers which are involved in this processing, right? This is a very complicated thing. So there are at least 12 stages of processing before you somehow recognize that chair or that object. So back in the 90s, we could only, you know, we wanted to do this 12 layers as well, but we could only actually in practice do a couple, two or three, and this is really, really difficult. So what we could do now is we're in a deep network. That's what the deepness of the machine learning, uh, of the deep learning refers to. You can now, if you look at Google's um, state-of-the-art object recognition software, it basically uses something like 20 to 25 different layers of processing. This was considered in you know, it's just way out of the, of the scope of possibilities, even say 10 years ago. So I think that what we have found over these 56 years of research is that we keep coming back to this thing. So no, no matter how, it's one of those things, you, know, you can kill it, you think it's dead, but it just rises from the dead and it comes back. And every time it's been the so-called AI winter where we get pessimistic and particularly in this neural network community, you think it's, it's all over, but actually, ultimately, it keeps, keeps coming back. And I guess the, the interesting question is really, is why? You know, why do we keep revisiting this idea of deep learning over the last 50 years? And I guess it's just because, ultimately, you know, the brains are doing this kind of processing, and there must be a good reason for it. Maybe many of the problems we see in, in the real world are having this hierarchical modular structure to them. So if you think about Images, they're composed of parts, you know, humans are composed of bodies, and then arms, and then hands, and then fingers, and then etc. So it's hierarchical structure. Language is hierarchically structured, you know, you have paragraphs, you have sentences, you have words, you have characters. This is all hierarchical. So neural networks, through their modularity, uh, they actually are very good at encoding hierarchically structured problems. And so many of the problems we, we find in the real world are of that nature, so it's very natural that machine learning and deep learning in particular, uh, using hierarchically structured algorithms are appropriate for particularly perceptual AI challenges. So with that in mind, one of the things that probably is an output of that is, is how, do, how do you like pass into the land of empathy, the, the land of emotion in that process of deep learning? And one of the conversations I was having with Ed was around a statement you made, um, a question that was in 2012 around, would machines understand the emotional consequences of the human sentence, I've lost my job? <laughs> now what's curious about that question in, in light of what Reinfer is about, is that you're dealing with customer service, where people are upset. And so we were talking about the boundaries about what you can do, and on the flip side, when it's something as unbounded as that question about understanding the job loss and the implications as human, maybe you can walk us through some of that. Yeah, so I think the question around this kind of example of I've lost my job is, you know, if you want uh, an AI type system to really interact well with a human, it needs to have empathy and understanding for the things that you care about in the world that you operate in. So it has to have strong kind of prior beliefs about uh, what you care about and the way that the world works for it to be able to successfully you know, interact with you. And that works for humans to humans because we have such shared experiences. But why would, well, how can we ever get a machine to have a similar kind of shared experience? Well, we can fake it to an extent. You know, uh, we could um, teach people that have zero empathy what losing a job means, right? By kind of just saying losing a job is bad. 
so, so what we do at Reinfer is we help uh, our clients better understand their customers by listening and interpreting, perceiving, accurately perceiving all the communications, all the conversations they have with their customers. So currently the way that customer support and customer service is often measured is by a kind of KPIs that have no relevance to the customer's experience, which is uh, average time to resolve the issue, right? Which actually results in uh, quite normal behaviors. Uh, you know, they're not, you know, not normal, but kind of undesirable behaviors as in just deleting difficult requests. <laughs> Um, passing it off to your colleagues and it's not and you, know, you might just say oh yes uh, this is kind of like poorly paid uh, customer support people apparently studies have shown that surgeons do the same thing so you know a difficult case dodge it because the McKinsey is measuring your uh, metrics in terms of your average time to resolution right so what you really want is to measure the outcome right you want to measure when you get a query from a customer you want to measure the perceived emotional outcome of how well you resolved that, not how long it took to take. So we are, in terms of that kind of perception, action, and then kind of reward and thinking about that process, we try and we're perceiving the world, but we're also perceiving the kind of emotional consequence of an intervention. So we don't take interventions. You can take interventions off the back of our understanding of a, of a customer's request, but the action the business takes is decided by humans within that business. It's not an algorithm deciding what action to take. But then we can help measure the kind of emotional outcome. But that emotional outcome measurement is based on a kind of faking what it means because we are measuring, it doesn't understand what it's like to be a human, has no notion of that, but it's learned that, thank you very much, you did an amazing job, you've been incredibly helpful, is a positive outcome. Mikhail, one of the things that we have to do as investors sometimes is take bets on promising ideas like these. If you look at a lot of the things that have gone wrong with the economy in the last sort of two decades, we can argue that it's because the models of classical economics don't apply to some of the conditions we have today. And some of these assumptions around how these things apply in terms of uh, perception and then obviously rewarding at the other end of it perhaps aren't too simplistic. And we find ourselves sort of over-investing in things that have yet to materialize not having done enough DD, not having fully understood the output of the research, which takes data and years to accumulate. How do you navigate that as an investor? How do you, or, or are you just basically hoping and backing a team that just has a PhD? <laughs> and just hope that uh, the cycle of uh, investment success is long enough to, uh, to look smart <laughs> in the far future. I don't know. I think, first of all, because the huge changes that are, that are happening I try to walk into it without too many preconceived notions. And um, that's why I'm meeting a lot of different AI teams and, and, and companies and not trying to say, well, it really needs to look like this, that, that, and the other. I think secondly, one of the things, like you said, like economic models have kind of changed over the years, but stuff like gravity is constant. And so similarly, you cannot build a company if you run out of money. Uh, and for deep tech problems, you know, from silicon way back uh, in the 80s to stuff right now that is more fundamental, you really need to understand where will you get the funding along the way. And so you need to be able to understand if we put seed money in now or if we put in a series A, where is someone else going to fund it and why and what kind of milestones do you need to see? And uh, so depending on what, what, a, what a company is doing, it is relatively well predictable how that functions and 
and therefore dialogues with the team around what are you trying to prove, how are you going to prove it, you know, are you trying to make the problem way too, too big so it's going to be hard to achieve what you need to achieve before running out of money or are you making it way too small and therefore no one's going to be really interested in what you do. It's very case by case, but that is a very important question. Secondly, with the, the speed at which Tim and his friends are snapping up companies and, and great research, you kind of have to ask yourself, is this something where the big tech giants are going to eat your lunch? Uh, is this on their path? Is this something where you need to try to compete with, uh, with what an AWS is doing uh, on the talent market? In a, or are you doing something where your angle is very different, where uh, you don't also necessarily need the best of the best people, but you're really smart in how you're applying what the state of the art is today, and then something else completely plays. So, but I think the opportunities are, are, are very, very wide, and that, that's why with an open mind, I look at every case one, uh, one by one. Excellent. Well, let's prioritize founders' questions first. Uh, we have time for maybe two questions of the founders that raise their hand. All right, so I'm a founder and an engineer and designer, mechanical engineering. Uh, we talked a lot about AI as a service and what AI can do to generate value for people. But I'd love to hear thoughts on AI and human collaboration, especially around design or any sort of field like that. Yeah, I think for me, the, the, the real simple answer there is, is it, everything is really layered, right? So AI by itself, in order to, to kind of solve full and complex situations is, is really hard. The, be, the, the best results often come from some rule-based stuff, some AI-based stuff, and then some human interaction, right? So I think that's, we're in the face that that's being enabled. Got time for one more. Yep, in the back. I'm cheating because I'm an investor, but you, you mentioned that you don't really think silicon is a priority, and I counted that you saw SoftBank acquire ARM and then set up a 100 billion funds to invest in creating the singularity. I mean, do you not think it's actually a, a real priority? And if you look at NVIDIA's GPU uh, performance and how they're focusing on that, is, is, is that not really a major priority for developing AI? Yeah, I just don't believe in the singularity. I know a lot of people do, Elon Musk and all that, but you know, I just, the only thing that we, I think, really care about is utility, right? You know, the question is, can we make stuff that people will buy and that uh, you know we find useful in our daily lives? That's all that really matters, right? We are so far away from this kind of singularity issue that I wouldn't. Yeah, maybe the philosophers can be concerned about it, but it's not something that we should be worrying about right now. Nevertheless, yes, you know, we can use this increase in GPU power and uh, data resources to do incredibly interesting and very useful things right now or over the like, next five to 10 years. That's what we should be focusing on. Don't you know, get distracted by these kind of like, you know, philosophical issues, I would say. At least in terms of the singularity, there are philosophical issues, you know, maybe ethical issues around, for example, the use of machine learning, AI in weapon systems, etc. right? But that's, uh, I guess, another debate. I should say, by the way, anecdotally, I was, uh, when Ed was talking about his uh, emotional thing, just to remind me of this, you know, some of the interesting things uh, in the early days of machine learning and AI were how to use, uh, sort of, you know, phone up air phone, air companies uh, to book a flight, right? Automatically, you know, do it on the, on the phone. This was cool back in the 1980s. <laughs> it didn't work that well, because the speech recognition systems were not that great in those times. But the funny thing is they had another machine learning algorithm running at the same time, 
which was there to estimate the emotional state of your voice. So if you got too frustrated with this damn thing, basically switch you over to a human operator rather than a voice. I'm not sure if that's a good story or a bad story, but I thought it was interesting. Excellent. So with that, let's give them a round of applause. Um,